we must reach before we teach. This is just one of many nuggets of wisdom that is shared today on episode 104 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. I had an amazing conversation with Dr. Jamie Hughes-Lika. She is a board-certified behavior analyst at the doctoral level, and she is also an Early Start Denver model certified therapist. We talk all about social engagement. And every Every year, I send a survey to my email list and it says, how can I help you? What are you struggling with with your learners? And you said this year, engagement, social engagement. So if you were listening in as a speech therapist, as a BCBA, as a parent, and you are struggling to engage with your own child or with your students, you will want to listen to the duration of this podcast. We talk about joint attention. We talk about orienting, seeking, maintaining. We talk about social reciprocity. And Jamie has been in the field for about 26 years with the last 10 years specialized on interventions for infants and toddlers with ASD. This is such an amazing show. I can't wait for us to dig on in. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Well, thanks so much for joining us on episode 104 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. We have a stellar episode for you today. Today, we have with us Jamie Hughes-Lika. Thanks so much, Jamie, for joining us. It's great to have you on. Thank you. It's really exciting to be here. And I think I learned about you and your work from one of my online besties, Nikki Adower. She is my go-to for all things ABA. And she gives me little messages sometimes on my Facebook Messenger and says, hey, you should meet this person. You should talk to this person. And your name came up. And so I think she introduced us. And so I'm really excited to have everybody else learn about your work because once I took your course and learned more about what you're talking about and discussing and putting out into the world, I thought, I need to have her on because it's such great info. So for those of us that are not familiar with you and your work, can you tell us about you and kind of your journey into the field and then, you know, your journey into the autism world as well? Absolutely. So I've been in this game for a long time. So I started out as a behavior therapist for a little boy with autism back in 1998, like part of a placement for one of my psychology courses at university. So I provided services for him in the home and in the school district. And he was the only little boy in that entire school. That's how long ago, you know, we're talking. And trainers from CARD came out and did monthly workshops and whatnot because there were no services around at the time. So I loved that, graduated, decided to move to Denver and worked with a supervisor who introduced me into the verbal behavior approach to treatment. And I learned all about capturing and contriving motivating operations and doing sessions and finding learning opportunities in the natural environment. And I love that. So I, of course, I wanted to learn more. So I went to Columbus and I went to Ohio State. Go Buckeyes. Oh, yeah. And I did my master's in behavior analysis under Cooper Heron and Heward. And when I was there, I really got into verbal behavior more. So I did some independent study sessions with Coop and thought, I got to have more. So I moved 
again, over to California, I worked for Dr. Partington, um, who was working on the second edition of the ABLES at the time. The ABLES are, so I got to do a little bit of work with that and really dig deeper into honing my clinical skills. Mm -hmm. So while I was in California, I learned about PRT. Uh, my, my journey has been wide and kind of into a narrow focus over mm -hmm. the years over the past two decades. <laughs> I learned about PRT, loved that, decided, you know what, got to move again, decided to move to England and did a PhD in intellectual and developmental disabilities and did a parent-mediated uh, NDBI study, naturalistic developmental behavioral intervention study for parents of children with autism in England. And around that time, some of the early start Denver model research was coming out. So I went down that rabbit hole and just have never left it. I've just been <laughs> deep down in there with thinking about naturalistic opportunities and developmentally appropriate strategies for working with toddlers, which I'm is my main focus for the past 10 years is the zero to three population, because I think it's very different working with a zero to three-year-old than a three and a half to four or five. Mm -hmm. So I've really been kind of trying to find these nuances and these pivotal skills for working with this population uh, really surrounding social attention and social motivation, which is what we're talking about today. And then along the way, I've had the opportunity to work with Dr. Deborah Fine on a bunch of research projects in Albania. I lived over there for a bit too. I move a lot. <laughs> and then back in the US. Um, and she's a research rock star. So that has been amazing to see those publications come out and to see some of the online training, online parent training stuff that we've got done for parents really out there. And I think it's just crazy to think that I've been doing this for 30 years. When I talk about myself and my history, it blows my mind how long I've been doing it and how fortunate I've been to work and know some amazing professionals, as well as work with some great parents and, and children that just keep keep me motivated to keep learning and doing better. So it's always a great opportunity to share that with everybody, I think. That's amazing. I didn't realize, you know, I'm sitting here in Ohio. We hadn't even talked about where I was sitting. So I am familiar. I didn't go to Ohio State, believe it or not. But actually, my business partner, now I can't think of her maiden name, but her name is Rachel Torrance. I uh, She actually went to Ohio State too. She uh -huh. also studied with them as well. And so when when they when we're at Ohaba, which is our Ohio ABA conference, they sign books and it's a whole it's a, you know how we nerdy we get as BCBA. I know. Um and so that's fun. I didn't know that. Oh wow. And then yeah, yeah, Dr. Partington, I actually hope to have him on the podcast in 2023. We've been talking on email. I used to work with older students actually the past mm -hmm. 10 years. And so I'm a big fan of the AFOLs, his mm -hmm. assessment for older learners. And so I really hope to have him on. Wow, that's amazing yeah. that you worked with all these great. These are important names, people. These are important names. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Okay. So now you're specializing in birth to three. And yeah. I know that you have SAGE and you're doing courses. Are you also clinically helping families or what is your day-to-day -day kind of, and I know you have, you're a mom as well. So what is your day-to-day? Uh -huh. -day? Yeah, it's a busy, as you can imagine. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I've picked up that BCABA, the BCBA, the BCBAD along the way, and, and that's fantastic. And then I've really worked a lot on early start Denver models. So I've been a certified therapist since 2017, and I'm in the process of, an, of being an apprentice trainer trainer right now, which I've been working very hard and long on. So that is really exciting to share this model and disseminate the amazing practices within it with other professionals who want to learn more. So part of my day um, 
involves working on courses that I developed through Sage Learning System. So it's my, let me give you my Sage advice for almost 30 <laughs> years of doing this and clinical lessons that I've learned. And they are online CEU courses for um, the International Behavior Analysis Organization, QASP, and BACB credits. So that's great for if you're looking for those. And they're really application focused. So meaning I'm going to teach you what it is, and then I'm going to give you the tools and show you the tools so you can take it and apply it and do it as you go. So we've got a couple of new courses that I just dropped a few weeks ago. And the first one is all about naturalistic developmental behavioral intervention, which really from 2015, that big article came out from Laura Schreibman and crew um, about this. And if your readers aren't listening, your listeners aren't familiar with it, definitely check out NDBIs. Because I really think for the early intervention population, zero to three, that ABA and developmental principles are better together. And that's mm -hmm. all what this is about. So mm -hmm. that one is out there. And then the one that I had sent to you to check out mm -hmm. is all about the social motivation theory of autism and what it looks like in practice. And I think what we need to be considering clinically as we support families and support professionals and support children backing it way up to, are we even identifying these as pivotal behaviors that we should be looking for mm -hmm. before we get to more higher level programming? Right. So I, love, really I, yeah. I love your focus. And actually we had Dr. Ariana Boutain. She works for a company called KGH. She has been on the podcast to talk about NDBI and she's actually going to do a course for us in the month of January. I think Yay. this will come out before um, that will be an ACE course about that, because I do think it's really important. We had Dr. Megan Miller come on and talk about early start Denver model mm -hmm. and things like that. So these are some of our our most listened to uh, episodes. But today I know we're going to talk about some um, social attention and motivation and things like that. So let's kick it off with. Can you tell us about the social attention differences in autistic learners? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Absolutely. I wrote some notes down because I can go on for hours about this. So that's beyond the scope of the podcast. So if we look at some of the research that's out there, that's demonstrating that there's neurophysiological, behavioral and molecular differences in autism associated with this social reward circuitry that's going on in the brain. Um, that's a whole nother podcast talk, but it's <laughs> fascinating. And Jerry Dawson has some really amazing work out there. And what we're looking at is this social reward circuitry, we're hypothesizing that these are the underlying differences within social motivation in autism. So we know that typical infants show preferential attention to people, uh, their eyes, their face, and body movements from the first days of life, they're dialing in and checking on that. And these faces and voices and body movements are biologically relevant stimuli that are normally a strong focus for attention in the early, early days. But young children with autism don't pay as much attention to the social stimuli, and they're more attuned to the non-social objects. So that I'm going to say impaired. We can say differences if that is a term that kind of fires people up. Like differences in eye contact is an early emerging cardinal feature of autism by at least one year of age. And um, I didn't share that. My toddler, Liam, he has autism. He was diagnosed a few uh, months ago. 
And it was around 10 to 11 months that I started noticing and having concerns. And I think that's just me working with this population for so long and looking at early, early signs. Mm -hmm. Um, So it just kind of hits home differently when you kind of think about it that way. Mm -hmm. But we have this failure to orient to social stimuli, which we can think about as a social orienting impairment or difference. And that's been documented for the past 30 some years. So we know the core diagnostic criteria for autism, as well as descriptions from parents and looking at home videos from the first year of life for many children that are later diagnosed with autism include infrequent orienting to one's own name, diminished eye contact, maybe some social differences or social aloofness. And these differences in social attention are among the first manifestations of autism. So we really need to really think about what does that have to do with programming and supporting families and clients? So how do we get the kids to dial back into us and to really learn observationally from what's going on around them when there's already kind of at the biological level, there's a little bit of differences going on there. We know that children with autism are less motivated to engage in social communication interactions. Mm -hmm. And the hypothesis behind this is that social information is less prioritized and socially reinforcing with everything that's going on. So if we talk about social attention, which is what it used to be in the early literature, and now they're calling it social motivation in the more recent work. The social motivation models of autism are suggesting that this early onset impairment or difference in the social attention sets into motion these different processes that are going to deprive or limit the child of these adequate social learning experiences. And then this has cascading effects on other skills over time. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to think about this theoretical framework. I think when we work with children with autism or older children or adults as well, and we think about what is the root of what we're trying to do to support them and and how do we get the most bang for our buck, right? Mm -hmm. So if we think about less exposure to the social stimuli, is going to lead to less social experiences, which leads to less learning opportunities from others. And so if we think about an increase in social attention, we're looking to greatly enhance the learning opportunities to really kind of serve as a mediator for all of those other amazing skills that are going to come later on. And there's a really great article, and I can send it to you if you want, by Chevalier and colleagues back in 2012. And they sat down and outlined a three-tier model for social motivation, Hmm. which consists of social orienting, social seeking, and social maintaining. Mm -hmm. So that is kind of the premise of that course that you took, Mm -hmm. as I sat back, broke it down, and started to tag these behaviors as defining them and measuring them and targeting them for interaction, and being able to look at what does that look like from a pivotal cusp kind of mm-hmm. approach or why do we need these skills? So if we're talking about social orienting, it's about the child responding to a social stimuli. They turn towards someone that they hear that voice. They turn when the name is called. They're watching other children. If we're talking about social seeking, they are initiating 
social interactions with others, uh, bringing an item, showing an item, looking for help, pulling someone somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then at the highest level, we have that social maintaining where we're looking at taking turns, social reciprocity, maintaining that going back and forth. So that could happen during playful interactions with others. Those are gestures, communication. So we have to respond, seek and orient and maintain. And I think that if we look at a lot of the practice that we see out there, I see this a lot when I encounter kind of more traditional ABA programs, not so much with NDBI focused on them. I don't see a lot of opportunities for children to initiate other than peer manding or requesting. And there are so many things and precursors that are skills that are before pre-linguistic, right, that are coming out that we really need to be looking at. And you have some really great stuff on joint attention. So, you know. <laughs> what I'm going on about here and where we're meeting yes. to. <laughs> I hear you. So. Oh, yes. I would like that article. Yeah, send that to me, please. Yes. Um, I think that's really well, because, you know, I've been doing I have been talking about joint attention a lot, probably the last year and a half, because I have a course called Start Communicating Today, which is for um, it's ASHA approved and ACE approved. So speech therapists and I have parents that take it, too. But that's what I see a lot is I do a lot of consulting. And I think that if we're not focused on these things, we're just missing such a big part of what we should really be working on. And what I have really found as I get really into the ABA world even more recently is that even though I talk a lot about collaboration between speech therapists and BCBAs, the reality is most ABA clinics do not have a speech therapist on staff. Some do. And that's amazing. Here in Cleveland, we really most of them do. So that's kind of what I'm used to. But as I'm kind of getting into the weeds of what ABA is out into the world, I'm realizing that I might be hired as a consultant, but a lot of places do not have somebody who's providing that programming. So that's why I liked how nuanced your talk was, because these are things that a lot of people, it's almost like the analysis and behavior analysis, we're losing it, right? Because the field is growing so much. And I, I see this in my own, I teach a class here at Kent, um, and it used to have four students. Now there's 14. And it's just mm -hmm. different. People are not analyzing things to the minutiae that I think that I was probably when I entered the field 20 years ago. So I think exactly. it's great to talk about these things. So yeah, please share that article. Um, but I, you know, and I think part of it is too, even with the VB map, which I, I really love, I, you know, any good assessment is not just one thing as a speech therapist, I always do an observation and I'm, you know, I know what to look for developmentally. This is another thing I'm starting to do more talks on just communication milestones because oh, as BCBAs, we don't get any of that information yet. Here we are programming it. So, um, well, you know, how, how do we assess this? I know that you said you might be working on something, but how do we now, if you're like, oh yes, this is exactly what I'm doing. Like, how do we get started in assessment for some of these skills? Yeah, that is one of the products that I'm working on. I've been chewing on this for a while, chewing on it mentally, kind of thinking about how to sketch it out is I don't see really anything that's looking at measuring social attention and social motivation out there. Mm -hmm. There are several things that we're looking at social communication. So we've got the early social communication scales by Peter Mundy back from 1996. We've got the communication symbolic behavior scales with uh, Amy Weatherby and Barry Prinzett. Those are all great. There's a social communication assessment tools for toddlers with autism, the SCADA, um, Drew and Colleagues 2007. And there's a social communication assessment tool, kind of a screener, the SCAT. 
um, by Murdoch and colleagues. So those are some really cool assessments, screeners that you can use to start thinking about social communication behaviors. But for me, for social communication to happen, we need attention and motivation. So I feel like I'm a step behind that. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to really think about asking ourselves the question of, how can social behavior be established through interactions with other people and to achieve interaction with other people when such interactions are not naturally reinforcing for the child, Mm -hmm. right? To kind of think about all this brain literature and the neurobiology behind autism or when social attending to other people is not as rewarding. So for me, as a clinician, it starts with looking at social attention and social motivation and how that matters. So how do we assess that or how do we measure that? Well, I think we can take those social communication behaviors and keep breaking them down like we do in behavior analysis to those little little skills. And I think we could think about what other behaviors you could define and measure that would show motivation and attention. So for example, in the Motivation Matters course, which I have launching in January, it'll be a three-hour masterclass of here's what it is, here's how to do it, here's the video exemplars, and here's all the troubleshooting that most people need because what do you do when it doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm, right, so right. In that course, we're talking about all the different ways to measure motivation and what that could look like with responding. So we could look at responsivity. How often a frequency, rate, tally count, is the child responding to your social bids? These are all social in nature, mm-hmm. right? So reciprocity, looking at that concept as how often is the child responding to you in a synchronized way. So within an X amount of time, directly related to what you're doing, we can think about response latency. How long does it take the child to respond to a bid from you, vice versa? Child affect, we've got the mood, we've got levels of engagement, length of engagement, we've got interfering behaviors. What does that look like? Mm-hmm. Social orienting, are they orienting towards you and attending or are you getting the side shoulder and they're leaving as soon as you approach? Right. That's a behavior that we could measure. All of the joint attention, the pointing, the responding, the initiating, the eye gaze, all of those socially mediated gestures, reaching, showing, giving, pointing, and gaze shift. You have to attend to another person and there needs to be some motivation for you to do that for it purely to occur, right? Mm-hmm. We could look at imitation. How often does a kid imitate your sounds, words, actions, initiation? I'm big on initiation. I do not see it enough. We are not holding space mm-hmm. and waiting so that the child can initiate. And I think that is always respond that's always resulting with us having listeners, not speakers to children. They're great listeners and they follow directions, but we need them to be the speaker as well if we're thinking like verbal behavior, right? So, and then if they do initiate, what do they initiate for? Are they seeking comfort? Are they showing you something? Are they being silly to get your attention? Are they asking for help for something? Are they wanting to play? Are they just requesting an object or a food item? So for me, initiation has got broad different kind of categories that I would break that down into because it's great if they request an object all the time, but there are other initiative behaviors that we want to be seeing socially as well. So I think it's really important. And I literally have a wait so he can initiate visual for myself, for Leo, because, you know, we are so quick to get in there (laughs) and prompt and offer support and errorless learning when really we need to step back and wait so that the child has a chance to find their voice in whatever form that looks 
like so that they can spontaneously and independently communicate and connect with us. So the power of the purposeful pause, again, (laughs) we don't always have it. There was one measure that I wanted to share with you that I came across that I've been looking into. And it's called the Modified Classroom Observation Schedule to Measure Intentional Communication, the M Cosmic. Hmm. And it's coming out of England. So it was developed to measure social behavior and all of the different forms, functions, and spontaneous communication acts. So they talk about uh, behavior regulation, social interactions, joint attention. It specifies if the child is the initiator, the responder, or if there was no initiation or response. And then it looks at different forms of communication, if they're speech type or nonverbal. So it's a really good, I think, for us as behavior analysts, we're always looking for a quantitative, right? Account. (laughs) But I really think we need to think about qualitative as well. So what for me, it's not just what any kid can do. It's how Mm -hmm. they can do it. How are we getting to that end goal? What's our journey going to look like to get to that data point for those outcomes? And for example, I was on site at a consult not too long ago, and uh, we were talking about how the little boy could knock on the door to open the door to get into the fun playroom. Mm -hmm. And all I saw was a hand over hand, helping him knock, kids not even looking, open the door. And I'm thinking, you're missing the whole social purpose here. Mm -hmm. He did it. There's your data point. But he didn't attend. He wasn't motivated. He didn't know what was in the room. Mm -hmm. It's just like we're missing the mark sometimes with some of this. So I really think that these qualitative measures can be useful and important for measuring the overall, I don't want to say appropriateness, but the overall quality of of how the child is socially interacting with us. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't see a lot of that by nature of what we do in our field. And I understand why, you know, subjective, Mm -hmm. et cetera. But I do (laughs) think there is a way to marry those two together to really get a good picture of the child's interactions and connections with us. Yeah, I'm excited to check out some of these because when I've been talking about joint attention, the way that my brain works when you're talking about all the different ways that you could imitate or request or, you know, bids for attention, I I don't know if it's because I'm a speech therapist and a BCBA, but when, when I'm planning these activities for, I still see a handful of clients privately for speech therapy, <laughs> I'm putting all these things together in these more natural environment activities. And yes, it is one-on-one and, you know, I do. So it's not my school-based life that I used to live, but (laughs) I, in my brain, I'm thinking all these things through when you're talking about all those different things. And I think that it's good just to talk about this information because the other thing that I think is really hard about our field is that all the things you're talking about are very nuanced. So when I'm in a home and I'm working with an autistic learner and he's a toddler, the parents Mm -hmm. are asking me questions like, well, how did you know to do that? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm a speech therapist and a BCBA. I've been doing this 20 years. I'm putting all these skills together and it may look like we're just doing a puzzle or it may look like we're just doing a little Shopkins game with mini objects, but I am putting this together to work on all these things. It's really a science and an art. And what I think is so hard about our field is that the frontline people who are running programming are people who need training. And so we as the BCBAs or speech therapists, whoever's listening or parent, really need to grab onto this information, get excited about it like I am and I can tell you are, and try to infiltrate your systems and train staff on these very nuanced things because it is nuanced, right? These things are very nuanced. Yes. And I talk about that a lot 
when I think about this from, you know, if we we're trying to talk about how do we target skills within our interventions, you know, we want to think about that. But for me, it's CDM, clinical decision-making skills. Mm-hmm. And you can have X amount of rule governed behavior. I follow this protocol. I do this, but it really comes down to some of those contingency shaped behaviors, trial and error, learning experience, referential, right? Mm-hmm. That's how you learn how to do this with mentorship and supervision over time. And, and I think you are a hundred percent spot on. We need to be kind of disseminating this to parents and caregivers and technicians and give them a system for how to learn how to make clinical decision-making skills. So if the child is not attending, here's option A, B, and C. What do you want to try? Mm-hmm. If we're losing motivation, here are three strategies that you can try to hook them back in again. And mm-hmm. for me, if we don't have attention and motivation, there's no purpose moving forward. You're just prompting and prodding them through. Mm-hmm. You want to go back to that social interaction component of all of the great skills that we're working on. Um, and I don't think that there's a system like that out there. So that is kind of the assessment that I'm working on, the scales of attention, motivation, and engagement that's not the name. That's what I'm playing with. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how do we assess it? And then how do we in the moment mm-hmm. it and adjust our behavior based on attention, motivation, which gets us, I call it connection for when I do stuff with Liam, because I want to feel connected to him. Yeah. Essentially, I'm talking about engagement, that back mm-hmm. and forth, not. So um, I think that's really important to look at. Mm-hmm. And if we we're going to target these skills within our intervention and think about troubleshooting. I think we have to think about everything that we've talked about so far about social attention and social motivation. And we take that into consideration and we think about what we're trying to accomplish in early intervention programs for children with autism. We're trying to increase the sensitivity to social stimuli or social award to other people Mm-hmm. which in turn can lead to an increase in learning opportunities and experiences. Mm-hmm. And that increased learning opportunities and experience leads us to more learning opportunities, which can lead to the acquisition of social language, cognitive skills. Mm-hmm. And why do we do that? Because reduced attention to activities leads to decreased opportunities. It's the opposite of what mm-hmm. we would want. And we have these cascading effects. They're not attending. This impacts that. It impacts that. It impacts this. So it's really essential to understand the persistent developmental differences of autism when thinking about treatment goals and considering NDVI approaches. And I'm so excited to hear that you had an NDVI talk and an ESDLM. I want to go look those up and listen to them (laughs) because I really feel like, you know, for the early start Denver model, the whole model is based on this social motivation theory. Mm -hmm. We are in the spotlight. We are trying to get the children to attend to us and ongoing naturalistic routines and activities to get to the core root of what we're supporting them for. Um, I don't know too many ABA provider said, if I said, why do you target this intervention? What theory of autism are you working? I don't know that they could give me an answer for that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's not taught in school. It's something that you get when you listen to podcasts and you mm-hmm. go to see conferences and, and learn that. So I think it's important for us to think about that interactions with others is the means by which language is acquired. 
Mm-hmm. And why it's acquired. It's a social interaction. Mm-hmm. So for me, language differences are secondary to the social. So that's me peeling it back, back to attention, mm-hmm. motivation, and social before we get to pre-linguistic skills, before we get to language and communication and all the other good stuff that um, some assessment tools like a VB map are enabled. They start right there. I'm mm-hmm. way down here at right. <laughs> skills before I even get there. Breaking it down. Well, and I think I read something when I was putting together Start Communicating Today about how over time they had interviewed parents who have an autistic child. And over time, they maybe didn't try to engage their child as much because their child wasn't engaging with them. And so it acted maybe as a punishment. And so behaviorally speaking, and so then they just didn't try as much, but then it goes back to all these opportunities to engage. And I think what you're saying really hits home because I worked with middle school and high school students who once you get older, you're kind of set in your ways and it's harder to work on these things. And I still try and I still do, but you can see where if we focus on this social component, this engagement and social reciprocity, that it does increase so many opportunities. And it really is the basis for everything going forward. So I love the idea that we're talking about it because you're right. A lot of providers use these tools that we've been talking about for assessment, which are great tools, yeah, but we absolutely. also need to think about where to start. So that's why I always applaud ABA providers that are thinking about these things or that are working with a speech therapist who understands some of these things that there's a lot that starts before we get on a level one. And I used to do talks about the power of manding and I still believe in manding and requesting, but now, you know, I'm starting to do talks called the power of joint attention. So it's kind of, I've been in this game a while too. So I'm just shifting the focus because I think that's really when we focus on this Um, It's interesting. I do an autism survey with my, I have almost 30,000 email subscribers. And thank you if you're on my email list. And uh, what they said this year and what they always say, about 300 people filled it out. And they said the number one pain point is engagement, is learner engagement. So this is Mm -hmm. something that I talk about all the time in different little ways. So I'm excited to read um, that article that you said you were going to send me because I think that's too. I just did a talk for um, BDS about joint attention and I saw that one. It was great. Oh, did you? Oh, thank you. And the BCBAs were just hammering with questions about eye contact, but there's so many other things that we can measure Mm -hmm. that me as a mom and me as a speech therapist and BCBA, I'm thinking like, we just need to have these shared activities because this is the foundation for the everything that's to come, which you, you know, with your PhD and all the fancy words, you know, all the research and you can say and share all that, which I'm excited to dig into too. But Mm -hmm. I know this is the cornerstone of more advanced communication. Yeah, I love that. I always think about like foundation, but I love the cornerstone kind of kind of putting that visual together. And I think about it as first we have the social motivation skills that are forming that foundation or cornerstone for these language skills to develop, mm-hmm. the orienting, seeking, and maintaining. And then when the children are engaged and interactive with professionals and their caregivers, they produce more acts of early intentional communication, right? Vocalizations, eye gaze, gestures. Mm -hmm. And when they are more intentionally communicating with their caregivers, their caregivers are are responding to these language input, right? They're trying to get that. And when we get language input, then we get language output. So I have many times where I sit and do activities with Liam 
And he's clearly not picking up what I'm putting down. And he wants to do his own little agenda, as we all do. (laughs) And I think some parents would get up and feel frustrated and walk away. I have done that myself. There's times I just keep my mommy hat on and I'm out the door and I'm going to regroup. But has, you know, I had a long day. And then there are other days I feel fortunate to have my behavior analytic hat on to say, okay, you know, behavior goes where reinforcement flows. And it's important that I am also getting reinforcement out of this activity. And that's why I strive so much for that attention and motivation to get that connection so I can feel reinforced for all of the effort that I'm doing to do a puzzle with him. And it's hard. I think um, he's our one and only. So he's our first toddler and, you know, his attention is (laughs) so with autism. So it's hard enough, I think, just to keep toddlers engaged, let alone a toddler with autism who's got different things that are reinforcing for him. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of early start Denver model therapy. It's just play for me. I don't know how to do it any other way. It's just play. (laughs) So we do a lot of that just to keep him engaged on these core critical foundational skills And those transcend every single interaction that we have through activities, routines, and playtime. And it's just rinse and repeat over and over, strengthening those skills where, like you saw some of the videos in the course, you just see it emerging. That is just naturalistic popping out of him just by working on these little core areas that are critical to getting him to dial in and stay in the spotlight with us and share the spotlight of his attention. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Really oh, good. good. Oh my goodness. Such good information today. Thank you so much for coming on. If people want to know more about you and your work, where can they find out more about you? Yeah. So you can go to, if you're looking for the courses, you can go to Sage Learning Lab or go to sagelearninglab.thinkific.com. That's the online where we keep all of the courses. And then if you're interested in learning about the products that we have for professionals, BCBAs, um, parents, whatnot, that is on the sagelearningsystems.com website, the main one. And I have um, various social media accounts, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and uh, Pinterest, where I try to post things, put resources, give out freebies, etc. Mm-hmm. So you can either search for Dr. Jamie Lika, or you can search for Sage Learning Systems. We're just starting to kind of build up that online presence and share mm-hmm. all of the really cool stuff that um, we have out there. And I wanted to see, I didn't know if we could put this on your website, but I yeah. had a list of one great research articles mm-hmm. to look at. Yeah, but also a list of strategies that mm-hmm. parents and professionals could use to work on embedding these skills and these targets or this focus within the therapy session. And then in addition to those strategies, I don't know if we have time, I could rattle. I have like five listed here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Share the strategies oh. with us and then we'll put them in the show notes. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I have a little visual type test. Yes. And then I had these troubleshooting, like the clinical decision-making that we were oh, talking Oh, yeah. About. I would love that. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've got, um, you know, different strategies to kind of increase the child's attention and motivation. And you know these just from yes. value <laughs> of what you do. Having fun. So establishing <laughs> these meaningful relationships mm-hmm. that facilitate this back and forth social mm-hmm. reciprocity. 
which is not as easy as it sounds sometimes when we're talking about children that have different things that are reinforcing for them and motivating for them. Mm -hmm. We want them to seek us out to attend to us. We really want to hammer away at that positive affect, right? So being able to keep the child in our spotlight and help them pay attention to us, that's all about the social orientation, one of those pillars of social motivation. So adjust your voice, ramp up those animations, change up your facial expressions, get in close proximity, adjust your body language, and just keep varying the types of activities that you're doing. Um, I don't know if you're into reciprocal imitation training. That's a new thing for me, and I'm loving talk it. Talk about it. Yes. And uh, start communicating today. We talk about that. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. But imitating the child's actions. And this mm-hmm. goes back to Dawson and Adams, uh, 1984, where they were looking at this strategy of imitating the child's behavior mm-hmm. increases their attentiveness and their attention, which mm-hmm. can have an impact on motivation. Mm-hmm. And the default, that connection or engagement. And One of the things that I really think about with this is while the traditional do this, copy me approach helps children learn new things by copying others, it ignores the social role of imitation. I talk about that all the time on other podcasts. We talk about developing babies and children. They play copycat just for the sake of doing it. Mm -hmm. So um, that is all about wanting them to socially initiate with us. The second Mm -hmm. pillar of social motivation. So Brooke Ingersoll has some really cool stuff on reciprocal imitation training that I'm just getting into. That's newer Mm -hmm. to me. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have these shared controlled strategies, which we do a lot in the ESDM or within NDBI type models. Think NDBI as the umbrella for all of the different mm-hmm. models that are out there where we can look at following the child's lead, taking turns, modeling new skills, imitating actions, and embedding those within those naturally occurring learning opportunities. Mm-hmm. And this ultimate goal is back and forth shared reciprocity, which gets us to social maintaining the third final pillar social motivation. So we have all of those really cool strategies. And then when I'm interacting with the client, I'm training staff how to work with individuals, or if I'm just troubleshooting at home with Liam during our playtime, there's five things that I'm constantly checking for, like a pulse, if you will. I'm constantly, (laughs) it's rolling around in my Mm -hmm. head. So we need to find out what captures the child's attention. That's mm-hmm. all about the spotlight. Where's their spotlight shining? How do I get in it? How do I get it back on me? Mm-hmm. So are they orienting towards me? Are they aware of me? Are they distracted by other things? And like I said, it's not easy to do when we work with young children. Mm-hmm. So when they're not paying attention to the people around them, again, they're missing out on opportunities. We have to work harder. We might not feel as reinforced and then we get burnout, right? (laughs) Why not just peel it back and kind of try to avoid that? The second thing I look for are the distractions. I have the attention. What is is pulling that spotlight away? What is competing with this being the center (laughs) of focus for all the good learning is coming? And how do I stay in the spotlight, change it up or up that dial if I need to? The third thing that we're talking about is the motivation. So following the child's lead. Sometimes we just have to sit back and see what the kid enjoys doing, right? There's Mm -hmm. assessments out there, but I just like to sit back and see what the kid's doing and how they're doing it. So some Mm -hmm. kids might not play with toys in a traditional manner. That doesn't mean it's not reinforcing for them and that we (laughs) can't jump in Mm -hmm. and be a part of that. The fourth thing that I look for is that we talked about that proximity or that zone of comfort. So I'm looking for Goldilocks. How close (laughs) can I get? 
um, that they're comfortable so that I can support them and engage in these fun activities. But how close is too close when they're etching away and skirting away? And, <laughs> and that's a big thing I think about when I work with Dr. Partington. He used to say, um, we want the kids to run to us, not from us. <laughs> yes. Right? Makes Simple. Sense. But so they're running away and not looking at you or they're oh yeah time for speech seat. yeah they throw the door yeah i mean i've had kids like that well, i mean because they've been on the ipad an hour and then i come in and try to make mm -hmm. magic happen yeah it's all about the environment i like that though simple but so yeah true. and i always think about it as we need to reach before we teach we need mm -hmm. to have a connection and social attention and motivation before we get to the amazing learning and then that fifth thing that I always look for troubleshooting is dysregulation. Um, are there interfering behaviors that are becoming inflexible, repetitive, or rigid? Mm -hmm. So that is a big part of Liam and his autism and what we work through and how we can support him and play with him and try to join him and meet him in the middle where he's at without getting stone cold pushed out because <laughs> he doesn't want us to be in there messing with everything. Mm -hmm. So does he get stuck on things? Yes, often. So how do we work through that sticky attention and work through those behaviors that are going to eventually pop up from time to time? And that we have to think about that these behaviors that are interfering or impacting his motivation to want to be with us, which draws the attention away. And it all just kind of spirals from there. So those are the five things that I'm constantly, no matter what we're doing, do I have all of these in play mm -hmm. to this optimal learning going? Um, and that's what I feel like technicians and parents could really benefit from a short visual, mm -hmm. just keep checking for this stuff, the vitals, if you will, keep checking yeah. for this. <laughs> yes. Your work, you don't have his attention, but you're powering through, pause and pivot. Red light, green light. I have a visual for that too. Like just pause. <laughs> It. So yes, um, it's so great to share this because I really hope people will kind of stop and think about this and, and keep going back to the root core of social motivation and autism and look at the seeking, orienting and maintaining behaviors and mm -hmm. what an impact this can have for interactions mm -hmm. and clinical programming and treatment outcomes. It's just fascinating when you really get down into the nitty gritty mm -hmm. of it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing those. And yes, whatever you want to share with us, we'll share in the show notes. And I'm excited to dig into some of those articles that you talked about because I discussed this a lot. And so in varying degrees of specificity based on who I'm talking with, but I, I love this and giving people ideas on how we can apply this to our daily clinical work. So thank you so much for coming on. It was really great to connect. You're welcome. It's been wonderful. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.